Okay, we're in Ephesians chapter 6. We're almost there. You've almost made it. If never you have read through an entire book in the Bible, by next week you will have made it through an entire book in the Bible. You can mark that down. It is only six chapters. So don't, don't congratulate yourself too much. All right, Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, and we'll finish in verse 9. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Gentlemen, how are you doing with regards to your house? Here's what I mean by that. Okay, in the, in the Greco-Roman world, the, the basic functioning unit, the economic machine, was called the house, the oikos. And what it was composed of was actually many things, but there were kind of three big foundational pieces to this. And it was marriage, it was family, and it was work. I'll say that again. Marriage, family, and work. And so it's no question that whenever Paul is writing in his letters and he gets past that part where he's explained the gospel for over 50% of it and finally gives command after command after command that he's going to almost always address how the gospel transforms marriage, how the gospel transforms family life, and how the gospel transforms your work. We know as guys that that's not really anything but common sense. But what we don't practice as guys well all the time, and I'm speaking for myself too, is we tend to think that these are compartments. We tend to disintegrate the house. If you own a home, you know that's a very dangerous thing to do. If you see a problem in one place, you are guaranteed that it is connected somehow to a problem somewhere else. I can't tell you how many mistakes I've made by trying to cherry-pick problems in my home, calling one person at a time rather than realizing there is a systemic issue that's taking place. It's not that the water pressure is low, it's that you've got a plumbing problem, right? And you've called three different people out at $120 a visit before you've even solved or diagnosed the problem. And that's kind of how we sometimes treat this house. If you can't see me, I'm pointing at my chest. This is the kingdom that Jesus Christ is interested in conquering and ruling and reigning. And the place that we can most vividly see the gospel is or is not working is going to be our marriages. If you're single, it's going to become your marriage. It's going to be your family, how you treat your children, and it's going to be your work. 
because you're going to spend 40 plus hours a week doing that thing more than anything else, even more than sleeping a lot of times. You will be spending your time at work. And so I'm asking, how is your house? Let me say this too before we move straight into this passage. Um, We tend to not be good at all three. I'm a great dad, but I'm really not that good at work. Or I'm an excellent lawyer, but I have no idea how to really be a husband. You know what I mean? Okay, Beware, here's a warning, don't go to your place of competency and camp out. If you become overly obsessed or engrossed with one place, the others will suffer. All right? If you have a broken marriage, it will affect the quality and the quantity of your work. That's going to happen. You'll either underwork or you'll overwork because you don't want to have to deal with the brokenness that exists in the marriage. Right? And if you're overemployed, you're having to work too much, or you're underemployed, you're out of work, well, that's going to affect the level of patience and compassion It's going to tempt you to fall into a place of self-pity and despair. And that certainly is going to affect these other relationships in your life. Are you tracking with me? We have to be careful not to say, this is the place of comfort and competence, so I'm going to throw myself into that thing irregardless of the consequence that it might cause to the other two and the oikos in the house. We have to watch. We have to be on guard. And we have to be hopeful that the gospel can transform all three. And so this morning, I want to particularly focus on family and work. And I want you to have some really rich discussion around your tables, uh, asking questions about these things. And maybe even once you see the questions, that there's seven of them, that you might want to try to get coffee outside of this to continue the conversation. Okay. So first, Paul's going to address children and parents. Um, All of us are the former, and many of us, or at least will be the latter. Okay, so look back at the passage just for a moment. Paul begins with the command. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Okay, now pause. I almost wish that this was translated this way. Children in the Lord, obey your parents. Okay, because just as Christ in you develops a different kind of love and allegiance to your heavenly Father, so also Christ in you will begin to develop a different love and allegiance to your earthly ones, to your parents. We see this familial relationship in the command in Ephesians 5 where all of these things flow out of, and it says, become imitators of God is what? Anybody remember? It's beloved children. This can't get lost on us. God's self-designated title is Father. You as a father are the window through which He is to be seen by your children. It is natural for a child to look through their father to God. And it beckons the question of what kind of window we're being. And that's where Paul ends. But he starts with children. Okay? And he's saying these, these earthly fundamental relationships are supposed to be windows into the heavenry, 
heavenly reality achieves for us in Christ. Think of it this way. With regards to marriage, he is our groom and we are his bride. But with regards to family, he is our father and we are his children. Okay? We, we don't just hold citizenship in heaven because it's our home. We, we hold citizenship there because it's where our father lives. And in some way, in some way, we long to be with Him. I just want to be with Dad. Be with Him. And the gift He's given us now is the presence of the Holy Spirit, which reminds us of our adoptions as sons of God. That's what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. We have a new Father. And so when we see children obey your parents in the Lord, I almost wish it said children in the Lord. Children in the Lord. He's your Father. So obey your parents. Not only here, but elsewhere, we're shown that our obedience and honor to our earthly parents is actually more reflective of our actual hearts towards our Heavenly Father than anything else we might say or think or try to show or try to prove. How you obey your parents on earth is reflective of how you obey your Father in heaven, and how you obey your Father in heaven is reflective of how you will obey your parents here on earth. They are connected and they are interrelated because God is Father. So we have to survey and evaluate how we are fulfilling the command to obey our parents. Okay, I, as a 37-year-old male, am called to obey and honor my earthly parents just like my children are called to obey and honor me. But why? And Paul gives us two quick reasons here. Look back at the passage. First, he says, for this is right. Okay, There's no better way to say that than this. It's common sense. Or in our arena, in our world, it's common grace. Okay, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It's just right. Says who? Says every earthly society that has ever flourished. Okay? Every earthly society, Christian or secular, has a placeholder for parent honoring in it. And those that don't are doomed to fail. If the family crumbles, historically speaking, the society will too. Okay? It's just right. That's what Paul says. It's common sense. It's common grace. Children are to obey their parents. Okay, but there's more to it than that. If you keep looking, keep reading. There is special grace, okay? Disobedience comes with a special promise. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Okay? This, this commandment is especially attached to fullness of life. To not be distracted too much by that phrase because you would say, I've obeyed my parents pretty well and I am dirt poor. So this is false, or I'm misled. And I would say, I love you, you're misled. Okay? Prosperity, don't think of of prosperity as particularly material, okay? Um, Those whose accounts are filled this side of heaven don't always have fullness of life. That's how I would put it. Okay? Those whose accounts, whose vats are filled... This side of heaven, 
do not always have fullness of life. And so we're selling ourselves short if we just think of prosperity in material terms. What this is saying is that you can have fullness of life if indeed you honor your parents as long as they live. Now, I'm thankful for one thing here, and it's the verb change. My parents are in the early 70s. Paul switches verbs here. It's helpful because I don't want to have to think that I have to obey everything that my father says. I'm 37. That almost sounds unhealthy. Like it would require some professional counseling if I was having to obey every word that my father said to this day. There's, there's a natural progression. There's a development that takes place. And I think that's part of the reason that it's not just children obey your parents, but then the commandment is to honor them. We obey them so long as we are under their roof and dependent upon them for our daily needs. We don't then begin to disobey them, but we honor them until they die. And it begs the question, are you honoring your parents. Don't think about the quality of parent that they are or have been. There's only one control we're told that we have in Scripture, brothers. You know what it is? It's self-control. We can't wait for Christ to transform them while neglecting to think about Christ transforming me. You have to start here and ask yourself, am I honoring them, no matter how dishonorable I may see them to be? Because certainly in this room, we've had some dishonorable parents. And I would even go so far as to say that all of you, to some extent, on a spectrum, have had parents who have wounded you in some way, especially fathers. A father wound is a common scratch on some and a gaping hole in others. It is not uncommon to have been injured or hurt by your father. That's why Paul's going to address fathers next. And if that's you, I want you to know that while you're trying to look through the window of your father to your heavenly one, I would invite you to look backwards. To start with your heavenly father and then to look into your earthly father. Because what you'll see in that process, if you can go backwards, is that there's maybe something to be redeemed, but there is certainly something to be loved. And it's from that place that you will draw the energy to fulfill this command. I will honor Him. No matter what quality He has been to me, what quality He is to me now, I will honor Him. Because my Heavenly Father Oh, he's so different. Grace, compassion, gentleness, kindness, correction, discipline, instruction, presence, time, pursuit, love, promises that are kept and not broken. That's what our Heavenly Father offers. That's fullness of life. And He will supply what is lacking and He will fill in what has been missing. And we work backwards to say, I now can obey my parents no matter what quality of parent they may have been to me. 
I can honor them until they die. I can fulfill this because of you, my heavenly Father. And so the verb change is helpful. This isn't easy to do, brothers. Obedience never really fully goes away, but the emphasis changes. We honor them until death. Let me give you a little litmus test if you want to write down some words. When it comes to your parents, which describes your motives and actions better? Okay, Not their motives and actions, yours, self-control. Okay, Resentment and bitterness. Or mercy and forgiveness. Remember, this is your actions, your motives, which describes yours. Okay? Desertion and neglect or support and care? Do you support them and care for them? Judgment and anger or compassion and gentleness? Okay? Real simply, honoring them means moving out of this first category into the second category. Because the Gospel can reach into that place. It can undo all that's been done wrong through the Heavenly Father. While there's that yearning for your earthly father to be the one, the window through which you see him. Okay? And I know for some of you, it's not your father, but your mother, and that's fine because the translation here allows for that. In the same place where it would say brothers, but say brothers and sisters, when it says fathers, it means it could be fathers and mothers. Whatever your woundedness might be, is it resentment, bitterness, mercy, forgiveness? Is it desertion and neglect or support and care? Is it judgment and anger or compassion and gentleness? Where do you see your heart moving towards them? Which one of these? Honor them because you are doing it as in the Lord. Okay. Next, Paul uh, goes straight to parents. And more specifically, we're going to speak of fathers because of the gender in this room. Okay. When Paul outlines how parents should behave towards their children, I want you to notice that it's not the exercise, if you look at the Scripture, but the restraint of their authority which he urges upon them. I'm going to say that again. It's not the exercise of their authority, but it's actually the restraint of their authority that he urges upon them. Okay? Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Right? This was countercultural in the Greco-Roman world too. There was an idea that was known as the pater familias. Okay? And the pater familias meant that the father had full right of disposal over his house. He could enslave his own children if he wanted to. He could take the life of his own children if he wanted to. And so in that world, for a father, provoking their child to anger was a pretty common experience. Because the father didn't just rule the roost. He didn't just rule the house. He could do with the people within it as he pleased. So Paul's saying, the Gospel flips that upside down on its head. No provocation. No exasperating. No heavy-handedness. No domineering. That's not what the Gospel does for you as a father. Think about your heavenly one. The the in Christ Father should be an altogether different kind of father to His children. 
And so that's why when it says to bring them up, a possible translation for that is actually nourish. So Paul's throwing in the face of the culture the idea that bringing a child up, it's, it's actually a nourishing thing. That the discipline that you should exercise, it's actually a building up kind of discipline. And the instruction that you'll offer is it's actually, it's not forced food, it's nourishment. It's not heavy-handedness. It's a resolved gentleness. Because the in Christ kind of father doesn't, he's not threatened. He's not afraid. He doesn't need to assert his authority. He's, he's confident in someone else's. And perhaps, guys, there's nothing that is more starkly um, made known and aware and easy to see than that kind of a father who restrains authority. That's what meekness is. It's not the lack of strength. It's restraining the strength that exists. We see that in the grace of God. That we're not all destroyed. Why? Because He's restraining. In His common grace to the world and His special grace to us. The time is not yet. He's restraining His strength. And it's grace. Because there's so many who have yet to believe, who will believe. That's the picture of what this father is. It's, it's a bringing them up, nourishing kind of father. He is not weak. He is strong. But he is not paterfamilias. He restrains his authority and uses it appropriately and wisely with patience and with love. Okay? Let me say one thing. This doesn't mean there's not a time for being stern or corrective as a father. Okay? It just means the end goal has less to do with asserting your authority than it does nourishing your child. And you know in the heat of that moment which one you're being. And that's why Paul warns, don't provoke your children to what? Anger. Okay, brothers, it's, it's not, it is not uncommon that an anger problem in a child is tied to an over-assertion of authority by a parent figure. Heavy-handedness often leads to hard-heartedness. You've got to ask yourself if you're being too heavy-handed. And if you've had a father or mother who was heavy-handed, you understand exactly what I'm saying. Sinclair Ferguson said this. It's, it's one simple, small line in his commentary on this passage. And he said, A domineering spirit is not a divine instrument. I'm going to say that again. A domineering spirit is not a divine instrument. Commandment is always given by God in the context of grace. Isn't that powerful? Uh, I'm working on this myself right now. I have a son who is young, stubborn, uh, brazen, bold, fearless, which is great when you're playing sports and awful when you're near water. Right? And he is 80% of the time trying in some way to buck against my authority. When I come home from a long day at work, potentially you know, entering into to some people's problems, that's kind of part of the job description of a pastor, I want peace at home. I want my oikos to, to be oikos. I want to walk in and the children run to me and grab my legs or waist, right? 
We know you're laughing because that hardly ever happens, okay? But he particularly will push limits and he'll test limits. And you know what I've seen recently? I've seen throwing. I've seen yelling. I've seen grimacing. I've seen biting. I've been told by the local YMCA that there has been only one day in all the days that I've dropped him off to exercise where he has not kicked, punched, or done something to another child. And if you met my child, you wouldn't think he's a hellion. He's so endearing. And he's fun. He's a gift. I don't, wouldn't trade him for the world. But whenever I see him being that way, and I go, you know why you're being that way? Because you just, you can't stand when you don't get what you want. You know why you're being that way? Because you can't stand when you don't get what you want. Right? He's a mirror into my own soul. Oh, don't exasperate him, Brent. Don't provoke him to anger. Don't let your anger lead him to anger. And you know what? I'm so thankful because I have a heavenly Father who knows. And He helps. He doesn't chastise me. He never grows impatient with me. He gently restrains His authority while He disciplines me. As a matter of fact, He tells me that it's His kindness that leads me to repentance. I should be such a father. We should be such fathers to our children. Are you being of the Lord in the way you father your children? Or let me ask it as I did earlier. Through you, what kind of father do your children see God to be? Through you, what kind of father do your children see God to be? Okay, and now Paul transitions into work. This is where we're going to close. Ephesians 6, verse 5, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Let's first talk to those in the room who are workers. Okay, Let me say this quickly. Um, bondservant or slave is a troublesome term. And it can become, uh, for lack of a better way of saying this, a distraction from this passage. But it's only a distraction if it's not addressed. Okay? The, the term is doulos. And in some ways it should be troublesome to us because of the historical cultural context of how we see bond servanthood or slaves when it comes to the last four centuries. And then if you're a historian, as you just look back, not even going to put a date, you just look backwards. Okay? But we shouldn't say more than Paul intended to say here about it. Okay, And here's, here's why I say that. Doulos as a term itself meant something different to them in that day. It certainly had elements and had masters who would mistreat their bondservants and their slaves, but it was, to, it was different in that day. For starters, Paul used doulos as a self-designated term. In almost all of his letters, he enters the letter by saying with an introduction, I, Paul, a doulos of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And then he often follows by applying the same terminology to the people of God. You're douloi. You're doulos too. We are all bondservants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? That doesn't take away from the atrocity of how some masters treated their bondservants. It does not. But Paul pastorally would never have used a term like that if what he had in mind was human trafficking or if what he had in mind was our uh, Western transatlantic version of slavery that took place in, even in our own nation, which was deplorable. I want to read John Stott's comments on this because I think it helps color with the right color, with the right hue, what Paul is trying to say. He helps us understand the historical cultural climate into which Paul was writing here. Okay? He says, slavery seems to have been universal in the ancient world. A high percentage of the population were slaves. It has been computed that in the Roman Empire there were 60 million slaves. 20 to 35% of the total population. One third of the population. Okay? They constituted the workforce and included not only domestic servants and manual laborers, but educated people as well, like doctors, teachers, and administrators. Slaves could be inherited or purchased or acquired in settlement of a bad debt. And prisoners of war commonly became slaves. Nobody queried or challenged the arrangement. The institution of slavery was a fact of Mediterranean economic life so completely accepted as a part of the labor structure of the time that one cannot correctly speak of the slave problem in antiquity. This unquestioning acceptance of the slave system explains why Plato and his plan of the good life as depicted in the Republic did not need to mention the slave class. It was simply there. 33% of the population. But it included both those who had been um, won over through war, and it also included doctors, administrators, lawyers, people in, an, in a working class. And it was all jumbled in together. And together was almost always referred to as the working class. Okay? And on the same passage, Sinclair Ferguson says this, the gospel works anywhere. Nothing can hinder it. Whether physical imprisonment, which Paul was at the very moment experiencing as he wrote this letter, or the social chains of slavery, which undoubtedly some of his hearers knew firsthand. Nothing ultimately can thwart the power of the gospel. And so what we have here is an apostolic teaching on how the gospel of grace functions in a social order we find intolerable. But the principles Paul enunciates are also applicable today to the social order with which we are familiar. We are not slaves. We have not been sold to a master, yet we have sold 40 plus hours in the week, in many cases, to a master. And we do this under carefully controlled conditions. We can quit if we choose. We have organized support groups. We do not fear physical reprisals. Yet there are lessons here about attitudes and the use of time that we can apply to our own workday situation. Okay, and so brothers, without sounding too simplistic or minimalistic, what we have here is Paul addressing a system that was to say the gospel enters even into the darkest places. And it was certainly darker for some than others. But it can transform even there the way that 
the work being done is viewed. And even in that system, it can transform how those who are masters are interacting with those under their care. Whether a forced worker or a free worker, the basic disposition of a believer is different from that of the unbeliever because the believer has Christ living in him, no matter his work conditions or work circumstances. And this particularly affects his attitude at work. Okay, and this is where we're going to close. First, it's a gift. It's a gift to have work. Work was always intended as a gift of God's grace. Work existed before sin entered into the world. Work needs to be redeemed after sin entered into the world. And the curse of work is that now that sin is here, it will become laborious, painful, and difficult. And so God sends us into circumstances, whether your work circumstance is easy or very difficult, to redeem the work that's there. You are a worker given a gift by God to be in, whether easy or difficult circumstances, to let the gospel transform, enter in, and redeem the work that's there. Okay, it's a gift of grace. The believer comes to know and understand that work is a gift of grace. It's something to be thankful for. It's something to treasure and appreciate. It's something to redeem. And with that in mind, Paul then says, obey with a sincere heart as unto Christ. I know the situation that you're in. I know it's not ideal. I'm writing from prison. But the gospel will enter even into the darkest places. Your in Christness will shine brightest where it seems darkest. And so there is, as it says, a sincerity of heart about the believer's work. Brothers, did you know that word could be translated as generous? It's helpful to think of it that way. Do you do generous work? Say it differently. Do you work generously? Do you do it not just with sincerity, but with a a freedom, with with an abandon? So instead of working only when you have to, or putting in just the expected quality or quantity of work, or fulfilling quotas and calling it a day, or doing just enough to keep your position, are you able with sincerity to say, I'm going to generously work in the workplace. I'm going to give it my all. The quantity and quality of work that I will provide will show a sincerity of heart because I'm working as unto the Lord. Yes, even hard or unwanted work, I can do that because of the gospel with a sincere heart. And then Paul gives a warning. Those who work as unto men do so with an eye service attitude. I will work so long as I am seen and I am rewarded and I am recognized. That person's master is not the Lord Jesus Christ. That person's master is self. Doing work when I am receiving recommendation, commendation for my service. Okay? His other warning is not to do it with a people-pleasing attitude, which is, I will work so long as men see me and men recognize me and men reward me for my labor. As you can tell, that person's master is not the Lord Jesus Christ. It's men of any kind. And the Gospel sets us free to say, I don't work for me. I don't work for you. I don't even really work for my earthly boss. 
I don't disregard him, but I ultimately work for the master, his self-designation, the Lord Jesus Christ. And why do I work so generously for him? Why do I work so sincerely for him? Consider how he has worked for you. Ah, oh, total abandon. Fulfilling his job. Shedding without limit his grace into my life, into your life. With sincerity of heart, he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be held on to, but he let it go. And he became a man, but it tells us more than that. He became a doulos. He became a bondservant. He became a slave. What incredible love. What incredible work that he would let go and take on what I am, so that I might become what He is. That's why we do generous work. That's why we work wholeheartedly with sincerity of heart. Do you work that way? Is there a generous attitude about you at your work? If you're a boss in this room, yours is really simple. Your command really not easy to fulfill, but it says, Masters, do the same to them. <laughs> it's the golden rule. Do unto your workers as you would wish done unto you, but even more so with one addendum. Do unto your workers as has been done unto you. That's the beauty of that passage in Philippians 2. The master who becomes a servant. You could say that is the Gospel. And so bosses, as you enter into your workspace, don't threaten. There's no need. Your Master Lord Jesus never would do so. Don't show partiality. It's unacceptable. Grace is an equal opportunity employer. Instead, do unto them as your Master has done unto you. There's nothing more impactful than someone who has the power and influence to crush, to demand, to assert authority, who restrains it for the sake of love. It's the transformed Ebenezer Scrooge. And the Bob Cratchit who has no idea what to do with himself when he runs into him. He once held so tightly to power and influence and money. But after he has a visitor in the night, he lets it all go. What kind of boss are you being to your workers? Do unto them as your master has done unto you. Father, there is much for us to consider. I pray for the conversations that will take place, that you would guide them, that you would give an openness around these tables. That we would see, Father, what kind of child we're being, 
what kind of father we are, what kind of worker we've become, and what kind of master or boss we are with those that you've placed under our care. Give grace to us, Father. Speak firmly and gently to us. Correct us and then bring us back to the gospel and let it watch, let it transform. Let us watch it transform our lives. I ask in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.